If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. As you know, a few weeks ago I got through just the first few verses. We'll try to get up to through 13 today, 513. That's where we'll go up to. It's neat how you see uh, God working in a life. Um, as I was telling the ABF class downstairs, um, Charlie Edgecombe is the one that's teaching the uh, class downstairs on transformation and how to speak the truth in love to another person. By the way, if you're not involved in the other ABF class, I would strongly encourage you to come downstairs. We only have a couple more weeks, but then we're going to be carrying on with other sanctification issues, how to change and grow in Christ. But one of the interesting things was Charlie set down what I was supposed to teach. And I wasn't thinking much about it, but then I started realizing, especially two weeks ago when I didn't finish everything in Nehemiah like I wanted to, I stepped into what I was supposed to teach for ABF, and I realized that the sanctification process, how to confront someone that I was supposed to teach downstairs today, was literally applied to Nehemiah's life. So what you see in your bulletin will actually be uh, the application to the principles that we, be, we began downstairs today. It just like, it folded right out. I thought, wow, you know, sovereignty. And so we're going to actually see how Nehemiah used the four C's. We'll get to that in a moment. But again, we're in chapter 5, and you'll remember that there was verse 1, a great, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. A great outcry. And what we're going to see is Nehemiah is going to have to confront. Now when I use the word confront, <laughs> confrontation, for some of you it's an unpleasant word. It's disagreeable. For some of you it might be downright offensive. <laughs> you might say that word is intrusive. You're intruding on my life when you talk about confront, or, or I am intruding in someone else's life. It's none of my business. By the way, if you say it's none of my business, just remember, every time the, the phrase one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, love one another, warn one another, Judge one another in the right sense. Don't judge one another in the other sense. All those means that we have to have community. Iron sharpening iron. We are called upon to encourage one another. We need to get into people's lives. I don't mean in the wrong sense. But we need to be here to help one another. Two is better than one. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. We need each other. And you'll see why we need. And that's really what you're going to see Nehemiah do. He's going to go to confront. And again, immediately I know that's a hard word for some people. Perhaps because you have either sought to confront in love and it didn't turn out so right. Or you were confronted and it didn't turn out so right. But again, speaking the truth in love is what we're talking about. So there's this great outcry, this great distress. By the way, it was very severe. Look at verse 2. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat. I mean, it's a survival issue. But verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields. And then verse 4, we have to even... Borrow money to pay the king's taxes. What was happening was this. The rich were lending to the poor at exorbitant rates to buy food, to pay taxes. But in part of this exorbitant rate, which is called usury, they were actually taking their lands from them. They were taking their crops. You say, what was the exorbitant rate? Some, well, they, the one word there is hundredth. Uh, some have... Um, postulated that what they were talking about was um, a, a percent a month, which would turn out to be 12% a year. So I, I uh, lend you $1,000, you owe me uh, 120 Well, then it's exponential. 
But others say it even went up to 50%. So like every year, let's say I, I lent you $1,000, you owe me 1500 at the end. Oh, you can't pay? Okay, now you owe, and then it was uh, 50% of the loan. It was exorbitant. And so you're going to see Nehemiah's reaction in a moment. The point is this, the poor were, explo- excuse me, the rich were exploiting the poor because they had money. And the poor needed the money. They needed it for food. They needed it for taxes. They needed it for the normal, everyday needs of life. And so what did Nehemiah do? Look at verse 6. And I was, what? Very angry. By the way, let me say, he expressed righteous anger here. I read you a quote, and I won't read it again, only to say this. <clears throat> a guy back in the, I think it was the 80s, said, you know, sometimes we have indignation fatigue. You start seeing so many sins, you just get fatigued by it. Indignation fatigue. You just, you know, and by the way, if you listen to the news at all, don't you have that even now in America? It seems like everybody's corrupt. Everybody's got their hidden agendas. Nobody's serving the public any longer. It's all for themselves. Don't get indignation fatigue, though, in the Christian life. And by the way, Nehemiah did not have indignation fatigue. (laughs) He was exceedingly, the word very angry means furious, because of the injustices that were done. As I said a few weeks ago, anger is emotion And it should be used to solve a problem. And you're going to see that's what happened. That's why you know it's righteous anger and not unrighteous anger. You can have unrighteous anger. And probably most of the time that we have anger, I would say a lot of the time it's unrighteous. I get angry because you hurt me. I get angry because I didn't get my way. But this is righteous anger. This is, as Jesus expressed, anger in the temple and cleaned out the money changers, zeal for the Father's house. It was Christ expressed righteous anger. Why? How? How do we know that? Because he, first of all, made a whip of cords. He was patient. He thought through and executed (coughs) that zeal, that emotion, that anger to clear out the people that were making wealth in in the temple. But here we also see... um. Nehemiah stepped back. He said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. But notice the next thing he does. He steps back and he consulted with himself. Not only did he express righteous anger, he consulted with himself. I took counsel with myself. In other words, he reflected upon the matter. The New King James says he, after serious thought, after serious thought, He considered it in his heart. By the way, we need to, when you see sin, when there's indignation, and we don't want to get fatigued by it, but we don't want to just react. We want to act. And he thought through what needed to happen. He consulted with himself. That avoids hasty reactions when you consult with yourself. That avoids snap judgments, which, by the way, only intensify the problem. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with a loved one trying to help them, and by the time you're done, you're screaming? (laughs) That's not helping anybody. See, he had to analyze and evaluate the situation. He didn't want to just have a a rash action or reaction. Proverbs 15.28, if you don't know this uh, particular verse, 15.28 says, the heart of the righteous ponders, yeah, word ponder means to study or meditate, how to answer. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil. (laughs) And that word pours out means belch. (laughs) It's pretty descriptive. So he consulted with himself, he prepared his heart. Before approaching another person about their sin, we must first begin by examining our own hearts. I think he was doing that. Are there thoughts and motives and attitudes? Are there attitudes of self-righteousness and attitudes of anger that is unrighteous? Or attitudes of bitterness or a spirit of condemnation or vengeance that 
would get in the way of what God intends to do. See, we want to be instruments of God's grace to people. To do that, you got to step back. Some of you are in a situation right now, you need to go to that person. First of all, you haven't even decided if you're going to go, but if you do go, you need to step back and examine your own heart. Make sure you go because righteous anger is there. Because, let's face it, sin destroys lives. You, you reach out. If I ever reach out to you or if you reach out to me, I hope it's because we love enough, each other enough to say, you know what, I don't want that sin to destroy your life. It's not about getting my way or your way or anyone else's way. We need to prepare the heart. Make sure that our hearts are loving and compassionate. That it's being driven by wisdom. We need to do those things. Otherwise, if we don't prepare our hearts, it sometimes becomes personal. It can become adversarial. We can confuse my will with what God's will is. So we don't want to do that. So we have to, you know, we have to step back. And for him, he had to step back. And I believe went to the Old Testament, uh, like a passage in Exodus 22. We'll see that in a moment. And he needed to make sure that he was going to the nobles for the right reason. And that was because they were violating God's word. As it was set down in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And again, we'll see that in a moment. But the point is, he had to make sure that the offense wasn't to him, it was to God. And that's why he's going. Hey, listen, I'm just the messenger, he could say. I'm not, you know, don't... Don't destroy the messenger because of the message. So, we find him confronting the nobles in verse, uh, the second part of verse 7. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Why do we confront? Why even confront? I told you before, it's rooted in the submission to the first commandment. We go because we love God, because love the Lord thy God with what? All thy soul, mind, and... Oh, I use the word thy. I'm thinking King James again. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, from God's perspective, the only reason... I, this is how one person put it. The only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord... And we want to obey Him. Our failure to confront one another biblically must be seen for what it is. Something rooted in our tendency to run after a God replacement. I love something more than God. That's why I'm not going to be involved in your life. And that's why you're not involved in mine type of thing. We confront unbiblically because we love something else more than the true and living God. You know, we might value the relationship. Well, if I, you know, I mean, they just won't like me and therefore I lose that relationship. By the way, that's happened before in my own personal life. You know, you go and you tell someone what you really believe. You know, you see a blind spot in there and it just wants you to think about this and they get upset and they don't want anything to do with you. But you have to step back and say, why did I do it? I did it for you, Lord. Why did I do it? Well, you'll see the next point. I did it because I love them. Why did I do it? I did it because I wanted them to be rescued from their sin. And, you know, if the relationship, you know, deteriorates, it's really their problem, not mine. (laughs) By the way, I'm not doing it to deteriorate the relationship. See, sometimes we just don't want to risk the relationship. That's idolatry. Or maybe it's because we just don't want to do the personal sacrifice. You know, it, it takes courage to go and lovingly speak the truth to someone. By the way, confrontation, you can use the words speak the truth in love. Now, when you use the word confrontation, it might be like this. <gasps> well, how about this? We're all called to speak the truth in love to one another. Does that sound nicer? You get the warm fuzzies with that one? Let's keep to that one. Um, yeah, speak the truth in love. You know, oh, but it is sacrificial. Okay. So again, the principle is to the degree that we give the love of our hearts to someone or something else, to that degree, now this is, we lose our primary motive to confront. But if we love God above all else, confrontation is an extension and an expression of that love. 
By the way, I'm adding pieces, but a lot of this is review, but it was three weeks ago, and some of you weren't either here or forgot totally about it. <laughs> By the way, what did you eat for supper last Tuesday? So, I should review some. <laughs> the second reason is we, don't know, we not only confront because it's rooted in the first commandment, but it's rooted in the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. A rebuke free of unrighteous anger is a clear sign of biblical love. Again, let me say that one again. A rebuke, speaking the truth in love, free of unrighteous anger is a clear sign of biblical love. But I am afraid we have replaced love in our relationships with sometimes hatred or just that word nice. Don't want to do it because I want to be nice. No, no, this is big stuff, guys. Sanctification's on the line. So again, true love is not offensively intrusive or rude. It just wants to love people. Love wants to love, right? Love wants the best. Love wants to help. It doesn't like to it doesn't want to see someone in the ditch. It doesn't want to see someone caught and just leave them there caught in their sin. So in a Kind of a conclusion, as one man said, the truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear others misunderstanding us or being angry with us. We are afraid of what others would think. We don't want to endure the hardships of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. Yet we know that the depth of love in a relationship can be judged by the degree of honesty that exists in that. I mean, that's really... So are we willing to be honest and actually speak it? I trust we do. Because it is our responsibility. And I would say this other reason. Because it's part of protecting the body. you got to do it. Because it protects the body of Christ, both local and the body of Christ extension. You can't just allow... Because what we do reflects on who Christ is. Isn't that true? So again, we don't want to fail to do this. Fail because of really, when it comes right down to it, hatred in many forms, and we won't get into it, we don't have time. But let's go on. Let me ask you another question. The second question would be this. Why do we all need confrontation at times? Now we turn it this way. Not only why do we confront, but why why do we need it at times? I mean, it's one thing to get us to believe that we need it to do it now, but why do we need it at times? Let me say, much of this has come from a book that we're studying downstairs. It's called Instruments in the the Redeemer's Hand by Paul Tripp. It's a classic, or maybe if it's not classic yet, it will be. But he really is so thorough. He's just one of those men that just are very, very deep. He's both a counselor, but more importantly, he's a theologian. But anyways, why do we all need confrontation? Why does Lee at times need confrontation? Why does Billy need confrontation? Why does Mike? Why does Steve? Andy, by the way, I just named the elders and myself. Well, I'll name the elders and then well, we won't go any farther. Why do you need confrontation at times? Why do you need someone to speak the truth in love? For a few reasons. The deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is more than just moral and social and relational failure or problems, however you want to say that. Sometimes we think of sin as just, you know, the action. Sin itself, because we are sinners, because we are in Adam, because in the sense that (coughs) offspring of Adam and sin has been passed down, original sin. Sin has stained us. It has stained every part of us. Now, thankfully, through the Spirit of God, Uh, New life, we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not blinded in the sense of total blindness, but there's still elements of blindness. And this sin distorts our entire being, our thinking, our actions, even our feelings. It's, It's what a theologian would call the noetic effect of sin. The noetic, not Noah. You know, not Noah like the guy in the boat. 
noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic. It's uh, from the word mind, nous. In other words, the idea is this. Sin has affected our thinking. That's what I'm referring to, okay? Sin has affected our thinking. That's what I mean by wrong, or excuse me, the deceitfulness of sin. It creates a wrongness in our thinking, an unbiblical in our thinking. And you say, well, how do you mean? Well, it, it creates a wrongness in how we think about God. We don't want to trust. We don't really want to believe. We don't want to be like many times. It affects how we look at others. Makes us selfish, focused on me, my agenda, my priorities. See, sin, through the noetic effect of sin, uh, sin has stained the, the thinking process and therefore our actions and our feelings and it just creates a lot of wrong thinking, wrong emotional thinking. <laughs> One guy said this, we are unclear or forget truths in the middle of suffering, difficulty, and distress. You ever notice sometimes you are like this, but then you have a trial and all of a sudden the emotions almost are like distorted because of the trial. You don't think straight. You're not steady any longer because you're going through the trial and you got these ups and downs even in your emotion. So my, so again, we need confrontation because of the deceitfulness of sin, because of our wrong and unbiblical thinking, because of emotional thinking, and again, my view of life. Just life in general, God, self, others, and how to get to solutions for me. <laughs> in other words, I need, I need someone to, to be, as it were, my seer. At times, I, do, I don't see right. I don't see clear this situation. And I think I'm doing everything right. I think I'm justified. And I need someone lovingly to come along to speak the truth to say, you know, John, you, you might want to consider this direction because the direction you're going isn't right. So we need each other. Paul Tripp in his book said this, quote, Minimizing the doctrine of sin is something we all tend to do. We usually minimize the doctrine of sin. Even though it is said that it is the one doctrine that, can, that we can prove empirically. In other words, we can observe. See, can you observe the doctrine of God? Well, yeah, you can see creation and you see how he's worked in your life. But have you seen God lately? Empirically, observationally? No. How about salvation? You're saved, but have you seen it? <laughs> when it comes to sin, though, it's observable. I can tell you categorically by observing you and me, the doctrine of sin, right? It's the one doctrine that you can prove by observation. Here's God's truth. Here are God's standards. Here are people. <laughs> yep, there's a doctrine of sin. They go against God, right? So, let me read this again. Minimizing the doctrine of sin is something we all tend to do. We minimize it, even though it is said that it is the one doctrine you can prove empirically. The struggle to accept our exceeding sinfulness is everywhere in the church of Christ. To accept it. We accept the doctrine of total depravity. That means it's, we are stained. But when, now this is the, the critical, but when we are approached about our own sin, we wrap our robes of self-righteousness around us and rise to our own defense. Now isn't that just true? <laughs> Which is the doctrine of sin. Because that's exactly what you would expect a sinner to do. Oh yeah, you're right. You're all sinners. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa. You're, you're saying that I'm doing something wrong? Whoa, ho, ho. you don't know where I've been. You don't know my situation. You, you don't know my family. You, you don't know my, my chemical makeup. Some, you know, blame shift somewhere. Let me finish out a quote. The effects of sin twist every thought and motive and desire and word and action. This disease has infected all, us all. And the consequences are severe. End quote. So we need to be instruments of seeing for people. They're going down this path and you see, well, no, no, you're in the, not only are you going down the wrong path, you're actually in a ditch. Do you understand how deep the ditch you're in? 
Can I show you from just what God says? You know, you can slam the door in my face, but you know, I love you enough. I want to show you where you're at because I don't think you see it. Sin blinds. And whereas with a physical blind person, they know it. If I had to. No, I won't. The problem with spiritual blindness, and what I mean by spiritual, I mean a saved person that just doesn't see a particular part in their life. They don't know it. Often they are, they are, uh, they're just, they just don't understand it because it, it, because sin is deceptive. Okay. Now, boy, I spent a lot of time setting this up. Now we're going to see Nehemiah use these principles and four C's. Okay. He confronted the nobles and the officials. Biblically and courageously. Now, this is the confrontation process. Like I said, this is actually out of uh, uh, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He just used the principles, but when I was studying for ABF, I'm like, wow, wait a second, Nehemiah used that. You know, you can start seeing it because it's just, it's the process of change. It's how you help someone. First of all, the substance of confrontation. It says he brought charges, known as plural, against the, uh, the nobles. Charges. Plural, the nobles and the officials. He didn't show partiality. He could have. It would have been very tempting. He's a new guy on the block. He's trying to finish a wall. And now he's going to approach the powerful people and tell them they're sinning. Sometimes at that point, we back down. But this is the, the step of consideration. Okay? Consideration. And the question is this. What does God want the person to see? Remember, we're trying to be, help people see. Some of you have children that need to see clearly. They're believers, but they're going down the wrong path. Some of you have a spouse. Now, again, primarily I'm speaking in the context of believers, though these are also principles for unbelievers, a person that doesn't know Christ. But there, you're going to help them see the need of the Savior, right? Some of you have a co-worker that needs to see. And so he brings charges. And look at the charge. I, I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Now, again, if you go to Exodus 22, you don't have to go there, but I think I wrote it down. Uh, verse 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, and this is the context, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from them. That's it. I mean, it's that clear. You go to Leviticus 25, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he was a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Verse 36. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. By the way, you see the contrast. You take money, you're covetous. You take money, you're greedy. You take money, you don't love. But fear the Lord. Fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. Verse 37, you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. You're like, you know, oh yeah, I'll give you a half a bushel of corn, but at the end of the season, I want to, you know, you're going to owe me a full bushel. No, you don't feed him to get, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God. There again, that's the motivation. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Do you see what he's saying? Hey, have I not rescued you? Have I not shown mercy to you? Have I not shown grace to you? Why would you do this? So again, Nehemiah brought charges. By the way, there was a couple other charges he brought. Uh, verse 8, the idea was you're enforcing the permanent slavery of these Jews. because you See, you're getting them sucked into the point where they'll never get out of slavery. And notice the last thing in verse 9, you are losing your distinction in the eyes of other nations. Because it says, ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So he really brings plural charges. You're, you're charging them usury, which was against Scripture. Therefore, you're not fearing the Lord. You're keeping them in bondage. And it's causing the other nations to, to scorn and to sneer at the, the Jehovah. Severe consequences for these nobles' disobedience. I mean, they were causing a lot of damage in the body, as it were. 
But as I've been saying, this confrontation, our key verses speak the truth in love. <coughs> as I said downstairs in the ABF, you've got to have both speaking the truth and speaking in a loving way. See, if you just speak the truth, if the truth is not spoken in, a, in love, it ceases to be truth because it is twisted by other human agendas. Do you see what I'm saying? You speak the truth, but it's not in a loving way. Well, if it's not loving, it means it's not sacrificial. It means it's not selfless. It means that you're doing it out of your own, and therefore, it's a human agenda. You've got to speak the truth, but it's got to be with love. Otherwise, it's going to be over there, someone else's agenda. But you can reverse it just as quick. Love that is not guided by truth ceases to be love because it is divorced from God's agenda. If you speak love but not any truth, it's not God's agenda. So you've got to speak the truth, it's God's agenda, with love because now you know you're doing it selflessly. So he goes and confronts them. So that's the substance of the confrontation. Let's look at the process. The process of the confrontation. By the way, I'm not sure what the first thing was because it just says this. Um, I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest. That's the issue. And I held a great assembly against them. You see that in the last part, I think it is, of verse... uh, What is that? I just lost my place. Verse 8. I heard a, no, verse 7, and I held a great assembly. Now, if you look at Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, uh, you go in to your brother, uh, confront him, basically rebuke him. If he listens to you, if he hears you, you've, uh, and basically repents, you've won your brother. The Matthew 18 passage is this. If someone here uh, has, I'm going to use Billy because he's an elder and I'm a good friend. But let's say he, uh, if, if he uh, really hurt me, what do I do? I go to Billy, uh, just pu- not publicly, I just go to him privately and say, you know, Billy, what you said it was really hurtful. And... But you know what? We don't see this in the passage. We don't see the private confront, uh, uh, confrontation, speaking the truth. And that's why I put a little uh, question mark. I, I don't think he did that. Because this is a public sin. Everybody knew what was going on. So he just goes to him direct. And I held a great assembly against them. The private conference had no effect or never was done on the nobles. He might have done it. Some commentary, uh, commentators said, you know, he, he might have had a big, you know, uh, got the nobles together, uh, confronting them there without the other people listening in, and, and they didn't hear. Maybe that happened. That could have been. But all we know is either it didn't happen or it didn't work, and now he just held, holds a great assembly. He just brings it out in total open. By the way, Matthew 18 says that if your brother doesn't hear, you take two or three, and if they don't hear that, then bring it before the church. The idea with sin is this. If someone doesn't want to take care of their sin, you, 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 you open the boundaries up. Okay, you don't want to listen to me? I've got to bring two more. Not that I want to, but just because you don't want to repent. All right, two or three, you don't want to listen to them? Usually you would take the elders. Next, that's third step. Fourth step, tell it to the church. Why? Because we hate you. No. That's how everybody thinks. Everybody's going to walk out. He said the word hate. No. Um, <laughs> it's because we love you. And the whole point of speaking the truth in love is, what's the key word? I wish I had a candy bar. I'd give it to you. What's it? <laughs> Starts with an R. Restoration. The whole point of going to someone is to restore them. Well, let's see if he restores them. Verse 8, and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought, have bought back our Jews. He's speaking now. Who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. <laughs> I love this. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. Shut their mouths. A convincing case. Nothing more to be said. End of story. Because if you let people talk, then, oh, but, 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 you don't understand my situation. 
No, what it was is the Spirit of God worked in those nobles' hearts, and they, at that point, were, as uh, 2 Timothy 2 says, they were granted repentance from God. By the way, if someone turns from their sin, it's always because God has been gracious to grant them repentance. Shut their mouths. Look at verse 9. He sought to challenge their actions and their motivations. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. How did he know that? It's not morally good. Because again, he would have had the Old Testament. Right? Well, that's the only Testament. That was, you know, the Pentateuch. Look at Exodus 25. Look at Leviticus 25. Or Exodus 22. Look at Leviticus 25. I'm sure, right? That's how he can say what you're doing is not good. Why? Good according to the law of Moses. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? By the way, that's what, when it comes to wrongdoing, it's always because our theology is wrong. We act wrong because we think wrong, and primarily we think wrong because of God, uh, as far as about God. <coughs> Remember what I said? The noetic effect of sin, it, it, it stains our thinking. So he's very clear here. You need to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Now, verse 10 is a pretty interesting verse. More where I, I and my brothers are, and my servants are lending them money and grain. By the way, lending was not the issue. Interest was the issue. Let us, by the way, us abandon this exacting of interest. I don't believe that Nehemiah, I, I've thought about this all week. Was that why he had to take counsel to himself? Was that why he had to step back and think, was he offering interest or uh, uh, lending money at interest? (coughs) No. Remember how Nehemiah responded to the sins of the nation in chapter 1? I want you to see this. Verse 6, second part down, he's confessing the sins of the people of Israel. By the way, Nehemiah is in Susa at this point. He hasn't even got to Jerusalem yet. And this is what he says. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted, verse 7, very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. I believe in chapter 5, verse 10, that last part, let us abandon this exacting of interest. I don't believe he was actually getting interest back, but he puts himself in the group. Because there's times when you're part of the community. And he doesn't want to do this. You know, you're the problem. I think that's humility. Sure, go ahead and lend. That's, that's actually a loving thing to do. Just don't give interest. Don't get interest. MacArthur wrote in his little commentary. He says, moreover, I, uh, Nehemiah set the example again by making loans, but not in exacting usury. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses and percentage. You know, the percentage there is a hundredth. And that's where people say, well, maybe it's a hundredth a month, 12% a year. The percentage of the money, the grain, the wine, the oil. See, because what they would do is they would give money, you know, a thousand, give me back uh, 1,120. Or 12% of grain, or 12% of wine. You know, that's why the main name, because it's an agricultural society. Money, grain, wine, oil. And that you have been exacting from them. See, what's the application in verse 11? Determine to stop it, and stop it what? Now. Don't wait till Saturday, next week, this very day. Stop it as quickly as possible. Decide to eliminate the wrong right now. Don't do this. Gradual stopping of sin. Sometimes we gradually want to stop sin. Well, Lord, you know, I won't hit her ten times. I'll just hit her six. (laughs) No. Stop it now. Lust. Stop it now. Gossip. Stop it now. When God shows you a specific sin you are guilty of, he doesn't tell us to take our time dealing with it. He says, do it now. By the way, this is a very, very big principle of becoming more like Christ. When you see a sin in your life, attack it with intensity. That's how they do it. We have to have a prompt and thorough dealing with our sin. 
Or as Chuck Swindoll said, he said, making long-range plans to correct a problem allows, allows the sands of time to hone off the raw edges of God's reproof in our lives. We end up tolerating the sin, even protecting it. No, no, we have to be intense about it. Um, you know, we, we can't be like... Um, well, I don't have time. I'm going to tell you a story, but no, no time. No story time right now. So, consideration. Consideration. Confession. That's the second thing. What does God want the person to admit and confess? Then they said... Most famous verse on confession is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin... Now, wait, wait the word confess means homo... Logio. Homo, same. Logio, speak. Say the same thing as. What do you mean? Say the same thing as God says about it. That's what confession is. Confession is you look at your sin and you say the same thing that God says about your sin. If we confess our sins, if we confess, if we say the same thing God says about our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? By the way, is it easy to confess? No. No, it's hard. Why? Because of the noetic effect of sin. You're not that bad. You're just a fellow struggler. Well, yeah, we are all fellow strugglers, but we should be conquerors as well. <laughs> Someone last year told me that. I remember that. He said, you know, you talk about fellow struggling. How about overcoming? Thank you, Brendan, for reminding me. See, we want to be a overcomer, but sometimes the noetic effect, you know... No, no, they are going to confess with the attitude of never returning to that sin again. Now, I want you to get that. They are going to confess that sin with the attitude of never returning to it. We often don't do that. We confess knowing we'll probably be back, probably within the day, or at least within the next week. Proverbs 28 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You conceal them. But then it says this, But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And the word forsake means to abandon. The word means I'm never going to return. True confession with repentance means I'm not going back. I want to put things in my life that I never return. I never want to be hooked to that sin again. See, you can't be like the guy who sent $150 to the IRS and he had a little note with it. If I find that I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's not repentance. No, repentance needs to be radical. By the way, if you think about the lust issue, remember Matthew 5 and Jesus says you should be willing to gouge out your eye, cut off your your arm. Now think about that. Think about how radical that is. How do you deal with lust? You deal with it radically. How do you deal with gossip? You deal with it radically. How do you deal with selfishness? By the way, you say you never want me to be selfish again? No, no. You get the intensity of saying, Lord, I want to change. By the way, gouging out your eye and cutting off your arm is radical, but there's a couple other things there. It's sacrificial. Lord, this sin is, I I will be sacrificial in dealing with this sin. And not only that, it's permanent. Once you gouge out your eye, you can't use it again. It's radical, it's sacrificial, it's permanent. If we were willing to deal with our sins that way, Lord, I, I, I need to confess, I need to go to these people that I've hurt with my gossip, I'm going to confess to them, and then I am going to learn how to speak the truth in a, in a loving way, in an edifying way, like let's say Ephesians 4, uh, 29 talks about. And Lord, I'm going to put myself in accountability because I, want, I need help because I want to be a truth teller. I want to be one who edifies. You attack it because it's displeasing to God. So do you happen to have that uh, chart? This was a, a neat little chart. No, that's not the chart. (laughs) You have consideration and confession. We just covered those two. That's the put off. See, the heart changes after the word of God and consideration hits the heart. 
Yes, I need to change. What's the next thing? I confess it. The next two things are commitment and change. Those are the put on. In other words, because I have confessed, now I need a new direction. And that's what we're going to see in the last couple minutes here. We have the commitment and with the change. And notice, if you put all those four together, that's what true repentance looks like. Sometimes we think of repentance as only confession. Repentance is a change of direction of your thinking and your actions. Let's see if these, these guys do that. Let's see if they have the fruit of commitment, of true confession. In other words, what new ways of living is God calling this person? Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. In other words, they were taking out, no, we're going to restore it. They're going to not only have their land, they're not going to have their, no, not only their grain, but what we took in interest, we're going to give that back to them as well. And notice this, he solidified the commitment with a promise. We will do as you say. That's an oath, that's a promise. It actually says it. Uh, he strengthened their commitment with accountability. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. So what do you see here? You see the fruit of a true confession and a true repentant heart because they said, I will restore, we will do this, and they promised in front of a priest. I mean, it is just binding. By the way, this is where we need people. Not only to, uh, cons- for the consideration, helping the person confess, but here, new commitments. We've got to declare our plans. You know, some of you need to declare your plan of living different. You're weighed by, down by sin and you keep getting weighed down by sin. Actually, at the end of this service, I'm going to let you, if you want to come up, actually come up and say, you know, Lord, I mean, between you and God, that right there, the commitment. There is, I'll tell you what, and I've seen this happen in my life in the last, in the last six months. Be radical. You've got to be radical. You see the sin, be radical. The, the tendency is now, let me kind of gradually work out of this. What happens as you go home, you know what happens? The heart will harden against that sin. The sin just solidifies. If you know of something in your life, you need to deal with it radically. By the way, I can't counsel with everyone at the moment. Maybe no one will come up. I trust that there will be some. If you are struggling with sin and it is just like weighing you down, you need to at least make the commitment and then say, Lord, what are the next steps that I'm going to actually live this out? Because they actually made it in public. I remember I was really caught in my sin when I was a junior, senior. Guy came through an evangelist. I didn't get saved then. But I went forward because I said, you know what? I want to be different. I was so tired of being caught by that particular sin. And so there's accountability. What is accountability? It's providing loving structure, guidance, assistance, encouragement, warning to a person who is fully committed to the the change God is working in their life. And that's what these priests gave was accountability. They made the promise they were going to hold them accountable to it, right? And then finally, I wish I had my jacket. I don't have a jacket here. It says, I, I also shook out, he gave an illustration, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken and emptied. By the way, the fold there was a place they put, uh, put stuff. It was like right around, it was near the bosom and it was where they kept precious, a precious item. And what he did is he opened it up and he said, listen, if you don't do this, may your most precious Whatever it is, be shaken out and destroyed because you have not held to your promise before God. And then finally, change. How should these new commitments be applied to my daily life? And you see this in the last part of verse 13. And all the assembly said what? Amen. By the way, that doesn't, that's not said in Scripture much. Amen. That only appears like 24 times. Using the context of God. What they're saying is, before God, we fear him. Before God, we want to change. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. You know why they did it? Because they were radical. And they were willing to be sacrificial. Do you think it was a big sacrifice for these nobles to give back all this? Sure. It's like after all these years, and you're in the stock market, and you made 38%, and you made 10% the other year, and 5%, and now your portfolio is this big, and find out it was wrong and illegal, you have to give it all back. (sighs) sacrificial, but if for God, I'll do it. Well, this is not the stock portfolio. This is people working with people, and they needed to give it back, and they did. 
Two final things I left on the bottom of your thing. Change has not taken place until change has taken place. That sounds pretty repetitive. What do you mean? Well, come time, we think that just the information is what we need. See, insight is not to be confused with change. Don't stop with insight. Seeing things is very different from doing things. Because we are called to be what? Doers of the word. Doers of the word. So now you see those four things. They were confronted by consideration. The heart was hit. Lord, I want to change. I want to be different. I did wrong. They confessed it. But is confession enough? Confess and repent. Go in a different direction. They made new commitments, which means they had new change. If you really want true repentance, that's what has to happen. If you really want to be blessed, you've got to be, like I said, I think radical. You know, I was thinking of some of the passages, just of talks about sin, a, a proud look, a, a haughty look, a, a lying tongue, um, people who, uh, who, who sow discord among the brethren, uh, selfishness and arrogance and bitterness and anger. And, and Jesus said, if you lust, it's like adultery. And if you have anger in your heart, it's like murder. Some are caught in these sins. Some of you are caught in different sins. And you just, God keeps knocking. And it's been on my heart for the last few months as I've been preparing for this. Like, you know what? It would be so odd just to walk away and say, but what about you? Because some of you are in patterns of sin. By the way, if you come forward, I don't know what your sin is. And we will all confess together we are fellow strugglers. But I would say this, don't leave without taking care of it. First, and I would say publicly, I know for me, I'm just saying, I haven't said much about it, but when I was a junior walking in front of uh, Peter Cardi, the the evangelist said, First Portland Baptist Church, when I walked those, it wasn't to get saved, I was already saved, but it was like, Lord, I am changing the direction of my life. And to be honest with you, it did. From that point on, things changed. It wasn't easy. It was very difficult. Some things were still impediment in my life for years later, and I was dealing with and have dealt with them. But what I'm saying is, even though I didn't know this concept, it was like, you know what? I'm going to go. I am making a change, a directional change in my life and how I deal with you, Lord. Because I want to fear you and not even fear people. What do people have anything to do with But I need help. And I knew it that night, and I went. And so if you're in that spot, or maybe you just want to say, you know what, I just want to make the commitment, even just by public, this is a change. And then I would also say, if, if that's the case, there's perhaps other steps that you could do. So let's stand as we sing, and if you want to, if you see in your heart, you know what, I need to make a commitment. I need to go in a different direction. I would encourage you to come up forward and um, just, um, I just pray right here at the, um, on the steps.